as Daniel was asking me what the lesson going to be about, what songs should he sing, and it's a temptation slash God with us or something, and I'm not good at creating titles for my lesson, so, um, but really, I like the songs you sang because, um, yeah, the, the, the lesson is more about God being with us um, overall, so we're going to dissect 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and see what he means by temptation and what's God's role in all this. Uh, so let's just read it again real fast. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13. Now I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I think. We read that a lot, and I think we have, and rightfully so, our own temptations, obviously. Um, but I think we kind of associate them with a few things. And what I really hope to get from today, for you guys to get from today, and I hope I'm successful in doing so, um, is that temptations are not only what we think or what we always associate it with. It's not just a few sins. Obviously, it's greater than that, right? It's not just sexual desires. It's not greed or just greed. It's not just glutton, etc. But have you ever thought about temptation in the form of having to go to work? We can thank Adam for that one. <laughs> um, or have you ever thought about it um, in the form of being hungry or something? Or something uh, very serious happened to a loved one? And those are kind of the temptations I want us to think about um, the kind of temptations we get from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So first, what's temptation? Essentially, it's anything to entice you to commit a sinful act. Of course, that sinful act is against God. So in the context of 1 Corinthians 10, it goes over a few things of what these temptations look like and what I'm going to be talking about today. So if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to start from verse 1, um, and I'll read through verse 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and and all the same, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock <clears throat> that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, for they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we read that most of these Israelites in the wilderness, as we already know, God was not pleased with. We know they will fail not wanting to go into the promised land, 
as they were scared and didn't trust God. But before that, God is going to give them the Ten Commandments and many more things there are to follow and abide in, which uh, they didn't do, as we, we always go over. And Paul continues on to say, don't be like these people. Don't do what they did. So what did they do? Well, as it says, they had turned from God, becoming idolaters. And I don't think the way idolaters is used is just saying they worship an idol, right? It's their heart being turned away from God. That's what 1 Corinthians 10, 14, it says, Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. It's encompassing everything before uh, verse 14. And so they turn their heart from God to self-indulgence, which leads to idolatry. And so what did they do as idolaters? Well, as it says in verse 7, they people, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So this is referring to Exodus chapter 32, uh, verses 5 through 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so then uh, they rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai, and he's taken a while. And so the people say to Aaron, build us a golden calf. And so Aaron does with all the Israelites' gold jewelry and all the people. It seems like they literally went to bed to rise up the next day. As it says in the New Living Translation in uh, Exodus 32.6, indulged in pagan revelry. It's like they're rested up so they can go crazy the next day, essentially. It's like, rest up, boys. we got a big day tomorrow, you know? <laughs> but, unfortunately, it was things not honorable to God. And verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, saying, it's saying, don't be like that. And it continues in some of the things they did. So in verse 8, it says they indulged in sexual morality, and 23,000 fell in one day. Verse 9, they put God to the test and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10, they grumbled and were destroyed. So in the context, Paul is saying not only is there temptation for sexual morality, but there's also temptation for putting God to the test and grumbling. Those are all the temptations. He's putting them all together in the same uh, as you will, same playing field, which is really interesting um, when you think about it because verse 8 to me kind of stands out a little more, right, uh, out of the three temptations, right? Paul made it a point out of those three to make sure we know how many died that day, but not the other two. And so it just kind of seems a little more serious to me, and I think it's, it's something, uh, I think it is a little more serious. Um, something more than just grumbling or putting God to the test, which those two almost seem to fit more together or on the same playing field, if you will. And it's all something we will go over. Um, but I think that's the point. There's something serious about temptation overall, but there's something very serious about sexual desires and all the harm that that, that, that does. So in verse 8, Paul could be referring to all those who died because... It could be off a of recollection. He could be referring to an incident in Numbers. Um, it can just kind of be on top of his head when he was writing it down. But I think it's much deeper than that. There's something about sexual desires that Paul wants us to realize because some people fell in one day. Temptation and sexual desires, when it evolves into sin, 
it almost never just has a consequence for that person, right? Everybody pays. It hurts the spouse. It hurts the kids, the people you know, uh, people that know you, etc. It's a big wave of consequence and why it needs to be taken seriously. Now, I'm not here to preach on marriage. I'm just going through the context, right? Um, and I'm not a marriage expert at all. But infidelity and or extramarital affairs is the number two biggest reason for all divorces. So what's that mean? Because of sexual desires, how many marriages have ended? How many families have broken up? How many kids grew up in single parent households? This temptation is real and has real consequences. So in Proverbs chapter 5 through 7, Solomon is pleading to what I think might be his actual son. Uh, It could be a student or overall to just men, young men in general, to listen to his words, to bind them on their hearts. Because he says in chapter 6, verse 22, these words will lead you. These words will watch over you, and these words will talk to you. He's pretty much saying these words will give you direction, guardianship, and it's going to give you some wisdom. So, you know, pay attention a little bit. Solomon spends three chapters on this issue alone. Three chapters. But what's so important that he took three chapters that he believes will change your life? Well, he's talking about the adulterous woman slash sexual morality and to stay away from her. Of course, this applies to any man or woman who is pulling away from sexual purity from the confines of their marriage or sexual temptations before marriage. This story, like I said, could have been an actual literal event or something observed. After all, we know Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, so I'm sure he's the perfect person to talk about the sin and what it will do to you. So it seems Solomon is addressing young men in these chapters as sexual temptation is one of the primary reasons why young men fall into folly. So Solomon then goes into this whole story on how the adulterers will try to get you, And Solomon is saying, do not do it. Don't do it. But unfortunately, in this story, the man falls for it. And he goes to the adulteress. And we get to Proverbs chapter 7, verse 21. And I'm going to read it uh, through verse 27. It says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way of Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. I don't think it's any coincidence what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10a is exactly what Solomon is talking about here. This temptation for sexual morality, once acted upon, it grabs a hold of you. It's going to lead to death. Her house is the way to Sheol. He follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. Paul's referring to the story in Numbers 21. Uh, let me just read that real fast, just as a reminder. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. We must not put Christ 
to the test that some of them did and were destroyed. So as I said, Paul's referring to the story in Numbers 21, which is pretty interesting, actually. And it's a story we're not going to cover in its entirety, as you could do whole classes on it, a whole nother lesson on it. I mean, um, as I'm trying to focus on one part of it, but like I said, definitely a good story foreshadows Christ and a lesson for another time. But let's go to Numbers 21. Uh, I'm start reading from verse 4. Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the Israelites became impatient with the journey because... They're going around Edom in the wilderness, traveling to the promised land. They get impatient with God, leading the way. Why has God brought us out into the wilderness to die? They complain, there's nothing to eat, there's nothing to drink, and this manna you've given us, it's, it's pretty horrible. Which is just kind of crazy to me to think about at this moment, because the Israelites, they've been in the, in the wilderness for some time up, up, up to this point. They're getting closer to their promised land, they're almost there. And this whole time you're telling me God has not been taking care of you. Let's go to Deuteronomy uh, 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, starting in verse 2. It reads, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all the land and all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and have not drink, drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I am the Lord, your God. God did this and has been doing all that. And they still complain. Man, I've sent a few serpents myself if I was God, right? I mean, come on. So they were testing God by having certain expectations and saying God has, has to meet these expectations. If he's God, surely he can get us out of the wilderness. He can get us out quick. If he's God, can he get us better food? This is what I want now. God provide it or I'm going to whine about my situation. And we're just not going to trust you. Have any of us ever been in that situation or something similar? Do we really think God can't provide for what we want? Or do we think or do, do we think God, in the sense for the Israelites, couldn't provide some other food besides manna? Do we think God in the wilderness, he could got them out sooner than 40 years if he chose to? Or was God working something with the Israelites with the manna? He could have easily had a variety of food, but he didn't do that. He could have had water at the drop of a hat, but he didn't do that. 
in Exodus, just shortly three days after um, they're leaving Egypt and they're being freed from slavery, just shortly three days after all that happened, they started to complain. And it didn't stop the whole time they were in the wilderness. This whole time God had been working in them so that they can have full confidence in God and full trust that God will always take care of them. Unfortunately for them, it takes a whole generation. It takes 40 years for them to understand that. And maybe sometimes today, we might fall into the same category as the Israelites. But for the Israelites, they didn't trust God. And so God was fed up. And he sent serpents which bite to them. And people start dying from those bites. They tested God, spoke against them, and they died. 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 10, the other temptation they, uh, that Paul talks about here. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So first off, in Numbers 13, uh, Moses sent out the men to spy out the land of Canaan. The men came back, and all of them except Caleb and Joshua say, we can't take this place. It's fortified, uh, the fruit's large, and the men are even larger than that. And so they're just like, we cannot do this. So we get to 1 Corinthians 10, 10, and it's referring to Numbers chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 5. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would, or would that we have died in the wilderness? Why does the Lord bring us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. So pretty much the congregation heard the report and they're like, Nope, no way, we're not doing this, we're out of here. And so then God and Moses, they have a conversation because God's like, I'm just going to wipe everyone out and I'm going to start all over. And Moses is like, God, let's, let's chill out a little bit. Let's, let's talk about this, right? Let, let cooler heads prevail, which I'm sure God was working something in Moses because God doesn't have to listen to anybody. So God agrees with what Moses, uh, you know, uh, tells him, but he agrees to an extent because there still has to be a consequence for their actions. So we get a 14, Numbers 14, uh, verse 26 and 27. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. So I looked up grumbling, and it's, it's more than just complaining. It's complaining about something in a bad-tempered way. So to complain in a bad-tempered way, you've, you've probably gone to the point of hate or anger, and we know that comes from the heart. So to grumble against God, that's, that's probably not a good idea. And I assume it's something the heart needs fixing. So then God punishes the congregation who wanted to go back and push, punishes the generation for the next 40 years. And the men who spied out the land, um, in verse 36, it reads, And the men who Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against them, by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up the bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. 
of those men who went spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephna, remained alive. So pretty straightforward. They grumbled, and they died. So that's my introduction. So what does this mean? What does this look like for us? And what does this, what does this mean for us? All right, so here's the thing. The Greek word for temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that always means test, testing, or tested. That's the same definition it always uses for 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So we know what the Bible says about testing, right? Count in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James chapter 1. Two through four. So these tests, trials, temptations means God is working something within you. God is trying to perfect you. In the same chapter, the Bible also says, that's James 1, 12 through 13, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So how are we tempted then? Well, let's continue reading James chapter 1, 14 through 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So when you're falling for physical desires, putting God to the test, or even grumbling and everything in between, your temptations can cause you to sin. Your temptations can have immediate consequences. And your temptations can even have everlasting consequences, as we read with the Israelites. So when you're tested, that's on you. Now, that's bad, but there's also a good sense to that. And I know how that sounds, but you just got to hear me out. And this is why 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is such a great verse. So the first part of 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13 in the New Living Translation, it says, your temptations are no different from what others experience. In the ESV, it says, no temptation has overtaken you. And that's why it's a good thing. It doesn't say no temptation has come to you or no temptation has taken you. Sometimes have you ever felt like, if there's a temptation, it just sneaks up on you and it gets a hold of you. And there's nothing you could have done, so you just end up sinning. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is saying there's no crazy temptation out there that has been experienced before. Especially there's no temptation that just can just snatch you up like that, right? It's like if a bunch of people came and grabbed you and threw you to a car and took you somewhere you didn't want to go. It's saying it, it doesn't work that way you can make the decisions for yourself to get in that car. So why does it work that way? Because the next part of verse 13, it says, God is faithful and will not let you be tempted, slash tested, beyond your ability. That's why it's a good thing. This doesn't mean he tempts us, but that means God is in control of what we are being tempted. And that's very reassuring. It's like Job, right? God didn't do those things to Job directly but he allowed what Satan was able to do to him because he knew him, and God knows us too. 
And God being able to do all that just shows his sovereignty. He has the omnipotent power to not let temptations or testings that he doesn't want for you. And this shows his complete, his absolute complete control of situations in our lives. Even though he may let sin tempt you, none of them come to you except in the boundaries that God wants them to and what God allows. And that should be so reassuring that we will be okay at the end of it. Because it doesn't stop there. There's another part to this. The last part of the verse, it says, but with the temptation slash test, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So that last part's a little tricky, and I feel like you kind of have to analyze a little bit. It's also very reassuring that God is in control. I think we've read that sentence before, and I think sometimes we come away that says there's a temptation and there's an escape, so you don't have to go through it. It might throw you off a little bit, but it doesn't say that. It's a little shocking what it says. It says there's a way of escape so you can endure it. You see the difference? 1 Peter 2.19 says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Enduring while mindful of God. Well, how does that work? 2 Timothy 3.10-11 says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So how is it that he was rescued from all this from the Lord if he still had to endure it all? In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when it says, But with the temptation slash test, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you have to listen to this carefully. This is saying escape from the test doesn't always mean getting out of the situation. And that can be a tough pill to swallow. Because temptation slash test it's not always going to be sexual desires. It's not always going to be greed. It's not always going to be gluttony. Sometimes there's going to be a situation of allurement from evil with a temptation to doubt the goodness of God. Because maybe a spouse got a serious sickness, or you lost a family member, or you're going through financial crisis, and it feels like you're losing it all, and that's when the devil wants you at your lowest point, and he wants you to start doubting God. And his greatness. That's the test. That's where this verse comes in. That the way of escape is that you can trust God. You will get through it. You will endure it while he wills it to happen. But you will also leave the situation when he wills it to happen. The escape part is that he's giving you escapes from sin. And doubt. And fear. And anger. So you don't test him. And you don't grumble him in your heart. You're escaping those one during the test. But you will endure it. You will come out of it and there will be a healing at the end of it. Because he won't allow more brokenness than we can endure. And that's God's grace. That's God's grace. All temptations are tests of faith. When this happens, God is working inside of you. All tests 
are temptations not to trust him. And I think the greatest test of all is to think we can do life without him. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a promise from God to his children that there will always be a real escape from sin, real escape from unbelief to whatever we face. So if you're here and you're going through some tests, you need our assistance, we can help. If you're here and you're going through the ultimate test, believing you don't need Christ and believe that you don't need to be baptized, you can also change that today. Whatever the need is, we're here. Please come forward as together we stand and sing.